If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to finish the book this week and start our fall series next week on um, spiritual resilience and it's how it affects us in perseverance. I think it's going to be a really good series. We, we were planning a completely different series for this fall, but as, um, as COVID went on, instead of becoming less relevant, what's actually happened is we've kind of hit the six-month mark, and there's something about human psychology in abnormal times where about the six-month mark, burnout sets in, and it gets worse. And we're noticing that um, helping workers like doctors, nurses, pastors, people like that are starting to hit burnout walls right now. And I, I was on a conference call with a number of pastors of larger churches the last couple of weeks, and one of the pastors said to me, he said, Nick, you need to sort out your burnout right now because in a couple of weeks, your whole church is going to be burned out, and they're going to need the most energetic person they've ever seen. And so I am trying to do that for your sake, but I also think that this series is going to focus on exactly what we're going to need at the exact time we're going to need it. So I hope you'll tell your friends and whatever. Okay. Let's read this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to start in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We, we talked last week about how at the very end of a letter like this, the apostle tells us a bunch of really practical stuff to do on the basis of all the stuff he said before that about, about Jesus, right? And you get to the end here, and, and part of the main focus of the very end is two things. One is that God is going to give the power of his spirit to help us through each of us. Okay, that's one thing. It's very important. So the, the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to help transform you into the image of Christ is going to come through that guy and that girl and this person and that person. It's not going to mainly be like some big supernatural thing that's going to happen to you, right? Like even if during this sermon— like, something happens that helps you. It's still, God help us, mediated through my ridiculous personality. Like, that, that's how the Spirit works, and, and we're going to have to grapple with that and accept it. And the second thing is, is that God's interest in doing that is for your, what, what this passage calls your whole and complete sanctification. That is, God's interest in your life operatively is only one thing, okay? Now, obviously, God is doing a thousand things in your life, but operatively, the thing he's like constructing and strategizing towards and working towards is only one thing, and that is your complete and total transformation to godliness, to be like Christ in character. That's it. And what the apostle is saying at the end of this is like, you need to not just accept that as true, but you need to bless it as good. You need not just grit your teeth and be like, I guess I could accept that. You have to be like, thank God that that's true. Right? He, he ends with, may God himself— See, it's a blessing he's ending with. He's not just teaching in these last verses. He's blessing. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you entirely. Right? That's not a—that's not like a, well, you guys, it's going to be bad. No, no, he's ending with a blessing. He's saying, the blessing is, may the God of peace make you completely like himself. Right? 
Um, my oldest daughter, God help her, um, has a temperament in a lot of ways like mine. I, I apologize as many, as often as I can for this. Um, but we have this weird mixture of what psychologists call ADD, which is a mind that wants to take in everything and block nothing out. Moderately high intelligence, so like an interest in lots of things and putting them all together. And what psychologists ca- say call neuroticism, which is um, being highly attuned to negative emotion and what can go wrong. Now imagine being in that mind where you pay attention to everything, you want to put it all together, and you're highly attuned to negative emotion and what can go wrong in 2020. Right? I'm not even taking any drugs. You know what I mean? And like, and I, like I'm 43 years old. I've lived with this temperament my whole life. I've, at this point in my life, learned to kind of make it work for me. It's one of the reasons I can see problems before they happen. There's lots of benefits to having a mind that works like this. And there's a lot of liabilities. Now imagine having that mind in ages 13 through 20. Okay? And so, you know, my daughter's trying to sort this out. And so one of the ways she does it is like, she blocks things out with technology. So she, she, she worked really hard at her job, and she earned— the, and she bought these, like, high-quality, like, AirPods, like the, the special Apple things that, like, will do your homework for you. You know what I'm saying? Right? And so she, like, she uses these to, like, you know, block out sound when she's trying to do her homework. She uses them when she's working out. She uses them when she should be listening to me. She, you know, she, like, she uses them to kind of, like, limit the amount of stuff coming in, right? So about three weeks ago, she lost the charging case for them. Just lost it, right? There were tears. The house was searched. I mean, it, we searched as for a lost child. It was like the, the parable of the lost coin. Everything was swept and turned over, and like, we wanted to find it so we could rejoice with our neighbors. You know what I mean? And we, it was not found, okay? And so by three weeks, it was given up for lost, and, um, and she was really frustrated. But that Monday, Monday of this last week, um, Aline and her family came over to our house for dinner. And um, so about 10.30, we started talking about spiritual things. Now, if you come to my house— and you're still there at 10.30, what I do is say, eat whatever you want, watch whatever you want, do whatever you want, but I'm going to bed. <laughs> right? And so Aline and Alexi and, and Abby and, and, and the kids, they were all, they were talking about spiritual stuff in the kitchen, and Aline's talking about how, like, you know, God wants our hearts, our whole heart, and like, we want all these other stupid things, and he really just wants us to know him. He's so worth knowing, and she's kind of going on about this, and, and Abby's just like, uh, and so finally, I was asleep for this, so I've only heard stories. Abby's just like really opened up about what was going on in her life and how things were like messing with her and just like— and they had this really amazing moment of prayer with her that was really meaningful where God met her needs, right? Like it was really great. The next morning, of course, I got up on time because I went to bed on time and was working on my sermon in my study. And I had, I, I had used the bathroom on that side of the house, and I saw those little AirPod thingies on the counter, and I was like, they were dead as nails, you know, and I was like, oh, poor Abby. So I'm, I'm sitting up in my thing, and I, I wasn't praying, but I was kind of like conscious of God, thinking about what I was doing, but sort of my mind was kind of drifting, thinking about her. I was like, you know, maybe I should buy her, like, see if I can get one on eBay, or not even tell her. We'll just, we'll just find it. Like, I just, I felt bad for her, you know, because I know she had been searching for these things. And I just had this, like, very intrusive thought, the cases in your mom's love seat downstairs. Now, if you have a mind that works like mine, you know what that is. It is an intrusive thought meant to break your concentration so that you can stop focusing and go do something else, right? But man, it was strangely specific, right? I was like, it'll take me 20 seconds. So I go downstairs, and in five seconds, I have the case in my hand, you know? And so I was like, that is really cool. So I get the family together, and I'm like, you guys, this is what happened. I tell them the story. I'm like, guys, I think God told me where the stupid AirPod— I whatever case is, right? And so Abby first freaks out. She's like, oh my gosh, you fell! Right? And then, and then she took it, and then she goes, Dad, this was God. 
Not because you think God told you, but because like I needed to not have these for three weeks so that what happened last night with God happened. Because I, if I would have had these and I could have blocked stuff out, I could have managed what was going on for myself emotionally and I wouldn't have broken and I, I wouldn't have turned to God and I wouldn't have asked people to pray for me and it wouldn't have happened. And then right when that happened, you found this and it makes me feel like God sees me, like that God knew. Like, and I, like, I was like, yeah, and like, you realize those are stupid things, right? It's like that little thing, it's just a dumb thing. It's just like, yeah, but like, it's the flow, right? Now, um, but I tell you that. One is, that is not the way I'm accustomed to God working and I'm uncomfortable with it, right? I'm, I'm, I, I like thought. I like structure. I don't, I don't like flow, right? I'm not a very good dancer, um, and I can't play the drums, though I've tried, right? Like, there's, I have limitations. And um, I'm not used to trying to keep in step with the Spirit in that kind of way. Not, I'm so focused on my deliberative mind. I'm not used to my, my intuitive mind receiving anything from God. Do you understand? And so prophecy is not something I'm used to functioning in. But the other thing, the reason I tell you that story is, is that what happened was not just that she got her stupid AirPod thingy back. What happened was is she recognized immediately that this was a work of God, but it was a work of God for her sanctification. It was about God loving her and God transforming her and God making her take a step and reach out and be, be humble enough to be ministered to another person and to know when God was trying to work in her. And all of that, God was working, but he did it through something as little and as silly and even as temporal and material as one of her belongings. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I tell you that is, is that it, it just, it, 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 fo it focuses on what it is that God, how God is working and that he works through this sort of spirit of prophecy, but he also works through, he, he's always working to the end of sanctification, and you have to get those things straight. He works through this very strange means of working through people by giving gifts and working ways that seem weird and also normal and not spiritual enough and yet spiritually kind of at the same time. And he's doing it laser focused on a single end, which is our transformation into the image of Christ. And that's it. If you think God is doing something else in your life, or more commonly you think he ought to be doing something else in your life, you're going to get sideways with God and you're going to get angry with God and you're going to try to control what God is doing in your life rather than experiencing what God is doing in your life. And those are two very different things. So let's look at these two things quickly. Let's see if I can make this thing work. Down? Is down work? Up work? Okay. Let's just—can we move two slides? Okay, so the first thing let's talk about is that we need to accept the Spirit, the work of the Spirit through others. Okay, we need to expect, accept the work of the Spirit through others. So God gives people his power through the presence of his Spirit, and he gives them gifts by the Spirit. So what Scripture teaches is that when we come to Christ, we experience the miracle of regeneration— our sins are forgiven, and the purpose of that is not just so we don't go to hell. The purpose of that is so that we can become a temple, right? God is cleansing us. Like all these things in the Old Testament were cleansed before they were used in God's service. We are cleansed by the work of Christ so as to be made a habitation for the Spirit of God. We become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and God comes to live in us, in the person of the Spirit, and begins to reform and change and transform us into the image of Christ. In that, through his temple, which is us, the Spirit radiates out, mediated through our personality and temperaments, certain gifts or abilities. Sometimes it's stuff we were already kind of good at that are kind of accentuated and used in the service of Christ. Sometimes they're like whole clothly different sorts of things. 
right? And these gifts are ways in which we strengthen other believers so that we're not just the temple of the Holy Spirit, a la 1 Corinthians 6, but we are also all each individual living stones being built up together into a holy temple, a la 1 Peter chapter 2. Does that make sense? Here's the thing. You have to accept that. Every person who is going to radiate the Spirit towards you in some gift that is meant to build you up is going to be a ridiculous creature, okay? You have to accept that. We all are strange, quirky, sinful, wicked, broken, made in God's image, regenerate. Like, we're this huge mixture of things, and we're all going through this process of sanctification, and none of us are there, right? Remember in the book of Job, like, God and Satan are having an argument about, like, one person on planet Earth who really serves him entirely. And Job has a hard go of it, right? He doesn't really win, but he doesn't really lose. And, right, in the end, he has to repent. And he's the one guy on planet Earth whose heart is totally given to God. That's where we are as the human race. Your hearts are not for God, right? And yet, here we are as these, like, cracked up, broken, fragile vessels of the Spirit ministering through his spirits to other people. And yet God chose that. Right? Which means he's not going to change his mind, and you had better accept it. If you stay desiring God to do some supernatural thing in your mind the way he should behave, or if you're waiting for him to bring into your life some, like, really good person to radiate out the Spirit, to minister to you, you're just going to be waiting a long time. I've spent most of my life without a mentor, mainly because no one was ever good enough. I wanted somebody that I wanted to be like almost entirely, and I've never met anybody like that. And so I've been by myself for the majority of my Christian life. And at some point, I was just like, you know what? I just need to take what I can get from who has it. And nobody's going to be the whole thing. Like when we do mentoring, we do, we're, like mentoring is a big thing at High Point. We try to match people up in one-on-one -on -one relationships of, of mutual spiritual care, where somebody's further along than the other person. We always tell the person who's getting a mentor, listen, this person is not Jesus, okay? Like, they're just more experienced than you. They probably have some wisdom from that experience in study and learning and growth with the Spirit, and, and they're going to minister to you. But listen, don't expect them to be, like, perfect. They're going to do weird things and say stuff that's wrong, and they're, they're human beings. And if you can't receive from people like that, you're not on board with how God ministers from us to us. Does that make sense? Now, how does that work? Let's go through this quickly. So the first thing that he says, he says, don't— quench the Spirit. The older NIV translation said, don't put out the Spirit's fire, which has led people to talk about the fire of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anybody talk about the fire of the Holy Spirit? The fire of the Holy Spirit. Like, if you get loud enough, that can really preach. But the thing is, is that nowhere really in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit referred to as a fire. Okay, in this passage, the word fire is not in there. And in the passage in Luke and Matt where it says, the, the one who comes after me, John the Baptist says, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's not they're not the same thing. He's, Jesus in his first coming is going to baptize all who believe in him in the Holy Spirit. And then when he comes as, in judgment as the returning king, he will baptize the world in fire. That is the fire of his judgment and his lordship. They're, they're different things. That is, the, the Son of God comes in two roles at different times. And in his first, he comes as a baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He gives the Spirit to people, right? So then why, why, did, why, why translate it that way? Because the verb is quench, and the verb for quench is only ever used of fire, right? So in Ephesians 6, it says, um, with the shield of faith, we quench the fiery darts of the evil one, right? 
The only other two times in the New Testament this verb is used, the verb to quench, it's always used in relationship to fire. So the Spirit is standing in for fire. But he's not literally calling the Holy Spirit fire. What he's saying is he's saying in our relationship to the Holy Spirit, it is similar to fire in at least one specific way. We can quench the Spirit's effects. That is, put it out. What does that mean? Think about it this way. So last night, um, the the Hortons, the the two of them, they're married as of a week, right? And my six— family members, including myself, were standing around the fire right after the worship night. We were talking, and we had to leave, and so Jason went and got some pitches of water and poured it on the fire and put it out, right? And just like that, eight people who were warm started getting cold. Lindsay said, like, two seconds later, she's like, man, you can just feel the heat go. Right? Now, listen, none of us made the fire burn. The fire just burns, and it produced light, and it produced heat, and we were nourished by it and helped by it. And, but yet, we were able to put it out. Though the fire is stronger than us, right? Like, if we would have—I put my hand in the fire, tried to pick it up and be like, I'm going to wrestle you. Like, the fire would have won, right? Like, the fire is my superior in all these mechanisms of power, but I have something over fire that fire doesn't have over me. I can smother it. I can put it out. And what the Apostle is saying is that there is one way in which our relationship with the Holy Spirit is like fire. That is, that we can behave in such a way as to quench the activity of the Spirit. That is the main consideration on our part, because the Spirit is given freely and graciously. God wants to give the Spirit. He does give the Spirit. He says that that Christ baptizes us in the Spirit. Baptizing is like getting really drenched. It's a huge, generous giving. Now, so then how is it that the Holy Spirit doesn't function more operatively? Right? The Apostle Paul says when he comes to the church in Corinth, he says, when I come, I will see not just what you say, but what power you have. He literally was saying, like, I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to see it. And when I get there, one of the ways I'm going to test where you are in God is the operativeness of the power of the Spirit in your life. And, and, And that power is operative in two ways. One is in the gifts of the Spirit, and the other is in the fruit of the Spirit. Right? One is is that the Holy Spirit radiates out through you to others in ways that build up and encourage others as outlined in the Bible. It's called the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of them is prophecy, as this passage refers to. The other is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the—that we become like Jesus through the power of the Spirit. We grow in, to quote Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We grow in those things, and that happens through the power of the Spirit. Now— how do we behave in such a way? Like, because if I ask you, okay, how do you think we're doing as a church? In the operative power of the Holy Spirit, how are we doing? Right? I mean, like on one level, we'll be like, well, we're doing, we're doing good. Right? And on another level, you're probably feeling like, well, is this one of those places where I'm just supposed to say I'm bad? Right? Well, I don't know. I, I, honestly, I mean, it's a real question. Some things I think we're doing great. Some other ways, not so great. That, I mean, that's usually what happens. If you look at the first chapters of the book of Revelation, where Jesus talks to these seven churches through his angel, he basically says, you're doing all this stuff great, man, but there's this one thing. You've got to clean up that one thing. It's going to kill you, man, right? I, that's probably true for us. When, don't you think if Jesus was preaching, he'd be like, man, you guys, because he's encouraging and loving, and he loves us, and, and he, any, any turning to him at all, he adores, right? He'd be like, you guys, man, I love what you're doing, right? And then at some point in the sermon, he'd be like, okay, now listen. Now listen, right? And I, and I don't know what it would be. It might be that we quench the Spirit in certain ways. It might be that there's certain, certain sins we're not dealing with. We're dealing with some sins, but not others, right? He might be like, man, you guys, you're so good on this, but you love your big houses and your leather car. Uh, you love that stuff. It's, it's worthless. It's nothing. 
Why do you think that? Right? There'd be, I don't know what it is, right? But we have to focus as believers on making sure whatever we do and whatever we can, we do not quench the operative work of the Spirit. It's, on, it's in our court. And, and, and notice, it's not like we're making the Spirit act among us. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, just don't put it out. The Holy Spirit already wants to work. He wants to work. He's present. He loves you. He's there. There's so much for him to do. There's so much he wants to. Just don't smother him. That's all he asks, right? So how, what does that mean? Well, he says explicitly, he says, listen, first, don't treat prophecies with contempt, okay? Now, one of the reasons why that's critical is prophecy is one of the easiest gifts of the Spirit to treat with contempt, right? If somebody works out of the Spirit, into the gift of helps for you. Like they help you fix your car because they want to use their gifts just to help you in some practical way. Nobody goes, how dare you speak for God? You know, like nobody feels that way. Like even in teaching, right? Like I'm, this comes from my deliberative mind through the Spirit. And so you can check what I'm doing. You can look at this verse and be like, is that true? Is that right? Okay, right? Like you can, it's a very straightforward way. Prophecy is strange because it is God speaking not through what he's already spoken as process in the deliberative human mind, but it, so it comes in some way intrusively into our intuitive mind, and we know it and we don't know how we know it, which is how your intuitive mind works, right? Everything you know through your intuitive mind, you know it and you don't really know how you know it. You just know you know it, right? And prophecy is like that. It kind of comes into that part of us, and it's like a message from God. And we don't know why we know it. We just know that we think we know it, and then we don't really know what to do with it, right? Unless we know to say it right? And then what do you do with that? Right? Do you just go, okay, well, I guess that's it, right? It, it puts everybody in an uncomfortable situation, and it's really easy to think that the answer is just to smother the thing. Because the person who said the prophecy is what? Is what kind of a creature? A ridiculous one. Every one of them. Every one of them, right? And so you just go, that's stupid, right? But, he, but Paul says, wait, wait a second. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Now, he could have said that for all of the spiritual gifts. Every spiritual gifts. From the even weirder gift of speaking in tongues to all the slightly less weird gifts from leadership and so on, right? You can always say that the person is ridiculous. The, the Bible teacher just wants to get paid. The leader just wants to control people. The person with the administrative gift just wants to stick to their rules. Like everybody, you can, you can make fun of everybody's gift and what they're doing because they're all ridiculous, right? And what Paul is saying is do not treat people operating gifts of the Spirit with contempt. Don't assume anybody who's operating in their gift is doing it for a bad reason or in bad faith or that it's just wrong. Don't start with a pre-assumed conclusion that it's bad, Right? Then the second thing he says is, but don't go from there to thinking that they're all right. Right? Start with, it, start with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is working. I believe that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is speak. Therefore, I believe there are going to be prophecies. Right? So if somebody gives a prophecy, this is something that can happen. Right? I'm a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I believe God can speak. But then the, the, the deal is, is that, but there is a lot of flesh in people. Lots of things come into our intrusive—intrusive thoughts come into our intuitive mind. It's sometimes it's hard to discern who they're from. That person could be speaking even in good faith and be wrong about it. So you have to—the second thing is test everything. You got to test everything, right? And then when you test it and you discern what's going on, the things that are good you hold to, and the things that are evil you avoid or flee. You resist. It's not that complicated. We act like it's complicated. It's not that complicated. Right? Now, if you believe that, it's going to do some things to you in terms of how you'll act, right? Like, first is you will believe that the main work of the Spirit in your life 
is going to be mediated to you through other people. So you're going to accept, start to accept other people, but you're going to realize that they're on the same path of sanctification as you. So that means you're going to have to accept ridiculous people serving you, which means you're going to have to change your attitude to a place of humility. Because what you're really doing when you don't like the other people because they're ridiculous is you think you're less ridiculous, which is probably not true. Right? And so what happens is because God has chosen this way of ministering to each other, he's forcing all of us to be continually reminded with the first step of social faith, which is humility. Right? Doesn't it make sense that God would come up with a spiritual mechanism by which he does things so we would be reminded that faith and humility are always the starting point so that we would always be coming back to repentance and faith however we grow? Right? When you think it through, the wisdom of God is all over this. Right? That also means that you'll be open to, um, to, uh, growing in discernment and wisdom, it also means that you'll connect yourself to as healthy a local church as you can find, because one of the work of elders or leaders in the local church is to model this discernment and to create a space where people can engage in things and it's safer. So for example, if I was here and this, I mean, and somebody was like, I think I ha- think God is saying something. I, I feel like I have a prophecy. Well, see, I, they don't just get up and yell it and everybody has to do it. Like, we have elders and the elders will test it and see what is good and hold what is good right? Having people who God has placed shepherding over the sermon process creates a space where people can fail and not be manipulated or hurt. Does that make sense? Okay, I gotta quickly talk about sanctification because we're basically out of time here. Okay, I'm negative zero right now. Okay, Um, the second is you need to embrace God's purpose for yourself. So embrace the means by which God ministers to you, but you've also got to accept the end to which he is driving you, which is your sanctification. The next verses say two things, right? It says, May the God, God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you wholly and completely. I changed those words because it's a better translation. Wholly and completely. The word is a weird Greek word that's only used once in the whole New Testament, where the word whole and the word perfect is put together. So may God sanctify you whole perfectly, right? And may the whole of you, spirit, soul, and body, be kept blameless to the day of the return of Christ. So there's, there's two ideas there, and both of them are complete. One is that you'd be completely sanctified or made holy, that is made in the image of Christ entirely. And the second is, is that all of you. Now, some people have taken from this that we should think of human beings as tripartite. That is, you have a spirit, you have a soul, and you have a body, and the soul and the spirit are different things. And, and, and I've heard preachers and Christians who have elaborate theologies of like, what is the spirit, what is the soul, and how they're different, and all of that. That's not what this verse is teaching, okay? The Bible uses probably 25 different words to get at the inner being of human beings. The heart, the liver. (laughs) There's a place where I feel it in my liver, right? It just means really, really deep is what that means. You know what I mean? So there's all these metaphors for what we're made up of. But when Paul says your soul, your spirit, your body, he just means everything. Like however you think of yourself, whatever you think is all of your being. All of your inner life, all of your spiritual life, all of your physical body, all of you, all of you, all of you. The whole of all of it, Jesus is going to keep blameless until the day of his return. And the way he's going to do it is to confirm faith over and over and over again in you as he brings you to complete and total sanctification. Now listen, here's what you really think. And I'll try to be quick about this. Here's what you really think. What you really think if you're a Christian, probably in America, is this. You are, you believe in Jesus, 
and you're not bad. You're not bad. You're, you know, you're kind of like, you're, you're like Jesus, uh, you're like Jesus a bit, you know? A lot more than most people, especially in your church. And the, the church is really bad. Um, and, but there you have needs, and there's ways God could really easily bless you and make your life better. And it's kind of weird that he doesn't. It kind of feels like he's not playing ball a little bit, you know? And, and you don't, you don't really realize the horrific blasphemy that is. Okay. You're, you're not good. <laughs> your heart isn't for God, and you're not close. And God is not not operative in your life. Okay. He knows where your AirPod case is. Like, he knows everything, and he's there, and he cares, and he's interested. The problem is, is that you're not really focused on his actual goal, which is complete and total sanctification. Everything in your character, everything in your personality, every wound that you've ever been wounded with, everything about you, everywhere, at every depth, in every place, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere he's interested in, and he's dead on focused on it, and he's not going to play for anything else. And you can't bargain with him, and you can't say, well, God, if you could be this, then I'll— No, no. And he will use deprivation, pain, intrigues, humiliations, disease. He will use anything for your total sanctification. He's interested in nothing else because nothing else leads to your perfect happiness. Because only the increase of your sanctification can allow you to tap into the beauties of God himself, which is the ever and overflowing fountain of the great pleasures of the universe. Only then will you see in light of the great beauty of God, the beauty of everything around you in this world, which is a great blessing and beauty of the world of creation, and only then will you see what he really made you to be and what you really are, this divine image-bearing creature, a temple of the Holy Spirit with divine and eternal significance. You only really see that. You can't see anything without sanctification. And he will never repent of your true good. And so give up on these paltry things and give up on the belief that God has mistreated you and not given you the good and that— give up on that and recognize that he will heal or form everything in you, and that is his goal. But you must not quench that work. It's the only thing that can stop it, is that by idolatry or contempt or refusal of faith, through worldliness, that you can quench the work of that spirit. You can, right? Because everything else—notice the language in this, in this, these verses. Everything else is about him doing it, right? For a couple of chapters, he was like, look, you guys, we gotta, we gotta work at this. We gotta, we gotta strive for these things, right? But at the end, he makes sure that you understand, at the end, you must understand he is doing these things by his spirit, right? He says, may God himself, the God who brings peace, so you don't have to worry, you don't have to worry. God himself is going to do it. And he's the God that brings peace. You don't have to be afraid, right? Where he is is peace, and he brings peace. You can be—it doesn't matter how bad you're failing, how much there is to do, how far you have to go, how deep your wounds, how—like, how, he's the God of peace. Turn to him entirely. He can bring peace in the middle of all that, and he can take you to the next good thing, the next step in the path of sanctification he's laid out for you, right? May he do it. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit—and he says, be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See what he's saying? He's saying, you're not even keeping yourself blameless 
By him dragging you through the process of sanctification that you hate, which is for your good, he forces you to confirm faith and to stay in his love and to persevere and so be kept blameless under the saving work of Christ until the very end, right? And he says this, the one who calls you, the only reason you believe in Jesus today, if you do, is because he called you already. He started this. You didn't start it. You didn't come to him. You weren't a good person. Somehow he got a hold of you and spoke to you and you realized you should come to him. That was a divine calling. Even if you thought you were doing it, you were because he was calling you and making you able and turning your own heart to him. The one who started this and called you, it says he is faithful and he will do it. Right? So as, as we face COVID burnout, as we try to figure out how to accomplish racial justice, as we try, just try to work our jobs and pay our bills, as we try to love the people we're being irritable with, and as we try to invest in friendships for the long haul, as we open ourselves to the work of the Spirit among other people just right around us because that's God's plan for us, right? The, one, the only thing God says is like, listen, you need to come to a posture where you aren't quenching the work of the Spirit. Don't quench the work of the Spirit so that He can sanctify you through and through. That's it. If you accept that by faith fully, every morning, every day, every moment. And so walk through this path that God is laying out for you, which you don't know and you can't know. You're going to discover it. Which could be thought exciting. But it's going to be dangerous and it's going to be deep. Because he's going he's to sanctify you entirely and he's going to keep you holy. 